Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet, the go-to podcast for parents with multiple kids, especially those with twins, triplets, or more, who are navigating the maze of modern family life and personal finance. Whether you're overwhelmed by education or retirement planning, parenting dilemmas, career transitions, or trying to define your purpose and plan, we're here to guide you with empathy, encouragement, and expertise. Hosted by Paul Fenner, founder of Tama Capital, a certified financial planner and parent to four kids, including a set of triplets, our podcast is your ally in the quest for financial peace of mind, proving that money matters, but family comes first. Subscribe now and join our community of empowered parents at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. There's no doubt that the COVID pandemic impacted all of us in some way. But for some of us, it changed our lives for the better. And for others, unfortunately, it changed it for the worst. As a mental health counselor at an academic institution, Dr. Aaron Halligan Avery needed a creative way and an effective way to connect with students without meeting with them one-on-one. The difficult situation ultimately set the foundation for Aaron to become an entrepreneur. Aaron stressed during our conversation the importance of finding trusted advisors and finding meaningful connections within those. She shares how relying on a community-based approach and asking for help and embracing support can lead to success. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Aaron Halligan Avery. Well, Dr. Aaron Halligan Avery, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Why don't you give our audience a little insight into who you are, what you do, and then we're really going to focus on, as we often do on this on the show, is uh, life transitions. And you had a really big one where you transitioned from a corporate role into not a different corporate role, but into your own business. And so yeah. I'm really interested to find out like how that transition happened. I, yeah. I love hearing people's stories. And I know the audience does as well, because they can take a lot of you know actionable um, steps from a conversation like you and I are going to have about this and figure out, okay, how do I work this into my own life? Yeah, I love that. I love the the fact that we're real people doing real things. And I think that just makes it so relatable and attainable. Not not less difficult, a, but no, not less difficult. <laughs> right. Um, because I never set out to be an entrepreneur. I never set out to be a business owner. Um, my background actually starts in psychology and counseling. I have degrees in um, counseling, mental health. I went on to get my doctorate back in 2000 and 15, I literally defended my dissertation one month after birthing my son, which, so I have this amazing picture. Yeah, right. I have this great picture of me standing next to the dissertation defense door, literally holding my one month old um, in my hands. And it was uh, quite an accomplishment. And at that time, I mean, I look back at that picture and I think, wow, I had no idea what was going to happen in my life after that or where it was going to take me. I thought for a while that I wanted to be in the mental health space doing therapy and supervision of therapists full time. 
I found out as a highly sensitive person and crazy empath, I mean crazy in the most loving, wonderful, adoring way possible, that it was way too much for me to sit constantly with people who were in deep, dark, challenging, difficult places because I was absorbing that energy day in and day out. So I moved more into the supervision role, which I really loved. It was one step removed. And then I went on to do some academic-related work in terms of being a professor and assisting just sort of in classroom stuff. And I really enjoyed that. But I I found my love, my home base in higher education, uh, specifically in student affairs. So all of my jobs in student affairs were involving students who needed support, care, guidance in some way, shape, or form, whether I was a disability support coordinator, if I was running our behavioral intervention team or student support network, which I'll get into a little bit. I oversaw a health and counseling and health promotion uh, center at one of my institutions, loved that. And I actually ended what I didn't know was going to be the end of my higher ed career, overseeing wellness programs and services at a large institution here in upstate New York. Loved that job, probably my favorite job, my favorite colleagues I ever had, which made it even more difficult to walk away from. So I'll go back to that case management piece for a second, because when I was overseeing student support, it's, uh, it was maybe two years after the Virginia Tech tragedy. Mm. And a lot of institutions of higher ed at that time were saying, we need to identify students who are struggling and share that information widely across our college counterparts and staff in a confidential, reasonable, and appropriate way. How do we do that? And really at that time, creation of student of concern teams, behavioral intervention teams, and threat assessment teams started to pop up all over the nation. So I had the privilege of being able to start such a program in 2011 uh, at the University of Rochester. And the program was amazing. It was so incredibly helpful. I would say sometimes too helpful because I saw a 141% increase wow. in concern girls in literally one semester. One semester, not, not even a year, like one semester. One semester. Yeah. Once it was uh, actually after a very successful marketing campaign, which I should have learned from that to not just go market all over the place. But I mean, when I say market, I was on every, the care network was in every bus, every table tent, every window, all information about, hey, you should submit students you're concerned about to the care network. We promoted to faculty, staff, students, parents, I mean, anyone who would listen, and they certainly listened. And so in that system, we would essentially be told about students who were struggling from a culture of care perspective. We want to make sure that they get help and get connected to support resources before they reach a point of crisis. And so that was really my job was to meet with these students and talk about what their concerns were. But after a 141% increase in one semester, it was completely unrealistic and unattainable for me to keep meeting with all of those students. And I wasn't providing clinical services or therapy in that role. I was sort of like, I like to say a traffic cop, sort of putting people in different places saying, oh, you're struggling with academics. You should go to this office or this office or meet with my colleague over here. Oh, you don't like your roommate? Not a problem. You know, let me connect you over here. It was like a plethora of 
or could be a plethora of different items that these students were facing. It wasn't just mental health. No, it could be anything. And so from a prevention standpoint, I like to use the example of if I can't find a parking space on campus, I'm not likely to want to go to campus to fight with that parking space situation. If I don't fight with the parking space situation, I'm not going to class. If I'm not going to class, I'm not doing my homework. If I'm not doing my homework, you see how yeah, this downward snowball spiral. continues to downward spiral to the point where now I might not be going to any classes or I might not have gone to class for two and a half months and I just don't want to tell my parents. And before you know it, we're potentially at a point of crisis or um, real dysregulation for that student or their family. So would these students just see, like you just mentioned, like you did a lot of advertising, they would just see this on, you know, a billboard or a bus or whatever, and then contact you? Yep. Well, we had a system. And so essentially imagine that you would walk around campus and it would say, concerned about yourself or someone else, let us know. And then there'd be either a QR code or an ability to go to our care network website. And then you would be able to submit a form about someone that you were concerned about. We also had an option for self-referral, which was my favorite part because we would always, always, always have students who would say, it's me, I'm struggling, I need some help. And then they just didn't know where to start. So they would come and meet with me. How do you know what the percentage split was between people that I guess like self-reported or needed help and came to you on their own versus others that reported people to you? I'd say it was probably an 80-20 split. 80 were reported to me by other people, 20 were self-report. Okay. And then how did you keep that private? Did the person that was being reported know who reported them? I love that question. So here's how this works. Whenever someone would come to my office, their very first question would be, who told you about me? And my very first best therapeutic would, response would be, I will tell you. But first, I want to hear from you. How does it feel to know that someone in this community cared enough about you to see that you were struggling and wanted to make sure that you got connected with support? And we would approach it from that angle and talk about that because instead of the shame and the burden, the the negativity associated with someone saw that I was struggling, gosh, if we can reframe that into someone saw I was struggling and gosh, they told someone so that someone can help me. You're not in my office to get in trouble. You're not in my office because... You know, I, I want to tell you that your depression needs to be managed, right? You're here because someone cared enough about you and saw that you weren't your best self. And I'm here to help you figure out how we can do that better. Uh, almost 100% of the time, I want to say 99% of the time, after that point, it was not a question about who reported me. It was, cool, what can you do for me? And how can we get there together? Just beautiful in my mind. So so you saw like kids flip a switch basically from going to like being angry about somebody reporting to like, oh, okay, take the temperature down and be able to actually move forward and find whatever help that they needed. Absolutely. Or they would say to me, would you mind just letting the reporter know that I really appreciate them telling you about me? This was such a helpful meeting to me, or I now feel so much better. Just let them know I'm going to be okay. And so I would always follow up with reporters and say, I met with so-and-so. And while I can't 
share the details of what we talked about. I want you to know how beautiful it is that you connected them with me because they're going to be more okay now than they were before you let us know. And in the future, if you feel comfortable talking to them or disclosing or saying who you were, I think that would be a really amazing opportunity to let them know that you care. And in many instances, they would right? After we get over that initial shock and concern and fear of someone struggling and I don't know how to manage it, that intermediary being me can sometimes help them lessen that feeling of, oh, I should feel bad about reporting someone. It's not a report. It's a referral. It's a referral for help. And it's okay to want people to get help and then to let them know that you cared enough about them to get them connected with support. So you you have this initial success, this huge increase, probably extremely mm-hmm. overwhelming. What what happens next? Yeah. <laughs> when I say what happens next, what happens next to Aaron? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, Aaron is incredibly overburdened, is working ridiculous hours, feels like she's going to implode, right? And thinks to herself, I need a way to help people get access to resources on campus without needing to meet with me directly because I need to reserve my time for incredibly high-level concerns. People who are incredibly depressed need to take a medical leave of absence, students who have thoughts of suicide, students who have experienced a sexual assault, all of those high-level, deeply traumatizing and concerning things. So I thought to myself, well, When people come to talk with me, something is consistent, and that is that they always know what they're struggling with. They will sit down in the chair in my office, and they will say, I hate my roommate. I think I drink too much. So there's a lot of self-awareness coming in. Absolutely. They know why they're struggling. Absolutely. They might not know, you know, where is it coming from and why did it happen now, right? But they are like, very clear in that moment that my roommate and I don't get along and I need to get out of this situation immediately. Or I'm in a bad relationship and I don't know how to get out of it, right? They don't know necessarily all the ins and outs and that's for them to potentially work through with a mental health provider. For me, they're just saying, I'm struggling. I need to know how can this institution help me get assistance for that concern. So that was clear to me as a theme. And the second thing that was clear to me was that many of these students just truly didn't know the inner workings of higher ed. I knew the inner workings of higher ed because I've worked in it my entire career. I know every acronym. I know what an ombuds is. I know the difference between financial aid and the bursar's office. But I thought, why do we require these students, these parents to have to know What office supports their concern? Why can't they just know what their concern is? I didn't know it, but in that moment, that's when Concern Center was developed. And I essentially worked with a friend of mine from high school, created the initial Concern Center platform, and honestly thought that would just be it. We'd create it, we'd implement it, we'd use it to help support me in my job so I could maybe sleep at night and not be answering emails at all hours. And then 32% of the undergrad student population went to the Concern Center platform in the first month that it was deployed on campus. And I thought, well, that's incredible. Look how many people 
we are able to help or get connected with support. And I certainly didn't meet with every one of those people. But this tells me that we have a customer service problem. We have an issue with digital accessibility and knowledge of what resources exist on campus to support different concerns. And I think we might be onto something here. So you and your friend took this on your own to try to develop something while you were still working in your, we'll call it day job, to figure (laughs) out something to help you through your day job. Oh, yeah. Did I get that right? (laughs) Yeah, you got it. You nailed it. And then shortly after that, these other institutions started reaching out to me and being like, where'd you get that? We want that. And I'm like, get that. Well, we made that. Well, how can we, how can we buy it? Like what exactly was it? Was it an app or a web-based application or? Yep. It's a mobile website. The reason it's not an app is actually intentional. And that is because we wanted to decrease any barriers to access. If you have to download an app, download the updated version of the app, have certain phone compatibilities, all of those things, all of those things could potentially be getting in the way of someone finding the resource they need. That's interesting because you would think that having it mobile would be more of a a non-hindrance because you could access it quicker. But to all the things you just mentioned, that makes sense too. Well, because it's a URL, essentially a, a website, it still is mobile. It just doesn't require you to have to have capability, right? So as long as you have the URL to your organization's version of Concern Center, you can access it just like you access target.com, you know, on, on your mobile device. So it, it was intentional because when we talk about access, Uh, For Concern Center, we talk about ease, efficiency, and equitability. Those are the three things we care very much about. And as long as we are sure that a user who is struggling can get connected with the resources on or off campus that can support their concern within a very short amount of time, we feel like we're doing our job successfully. So you build this platform... It literally like blows up overnight on your campus. (laughs) And then you start having people find out about it from other institutions. So how did other institutions find out about it? And then where did it go from there? So I attend a lot of conferences. So I would talk about the Concern Center platform and what we were doing at different conferences that we attended. I also sit and have sat for the last nine years on the national Behavioral Intervention and Threat Assessment Board, uh, which is a really wonderful organization that helps support really institutions of higher education, businesses, and K-12s to get um, their student support teams and threat assessment teams up and running. So um, they were assistive in telling campuses about us. Students would tell other students who would then tell administrators on their college campus, how come we don't have something like this? So as far as I know, those are the main ways. I would just literally have people calling me and saying, "Uh, how do we get that? How do we get that on our campus? And you would think that that would be the end of this beautiful story, right? That I would be like, and then we became an overnight success and it was wonderful. And we all lived happily ever, ever. And I I run my own business. And that is 100% not what happened at that point. (laughs) Well, that was my next question. Now what? <laughs> Where's the where, Here's the big transition. Then I went into denial. And I was like, that's really great. That's wonderful. I'm so happy this can help people. Sure. You know, let's, 
let's give this to some schools, you know, let's help them do what they do better. And I'm like, I am a student affairs higher ed professional. That's why I'm going to be a VP of student affairs someday. I'm just on this track. That's what I'm going to do. And I went on, I got another job. And then that's when I was overseeing the health and counseling center. And I just sort of put it on the back shelf. The the man who from high school who worked with me to create it was like, you should really turn this into a company. Like this, you should really be a business. I'm like, I'm not a business woman. That's, there's a lot that goes into that. I just So was everybody just using so was all the other institutions, including the one that you built it for, just using it for free basically? We would sell it for a very nominal cost. <laughs> At that time, it wasn't even a SaaS model. It was like, oh, here you go. Here's some code. It was just really like the exact opposite what anyone in a tech industry would ever want to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> With its code base. Um, all of those clients have now turned into SaaS-based customers, I should say. So that's good news uh, for us. But I, I, I didn't want to be a business owner. I just did that wasn't part of my identity at the time. I wanted to be in student affairs. I loved working in higher education. I had been recruited when I was at one of my positions to go to this special event in New York City, not upstate, definitely the city, um, for people that they thought had promised to be VPs and presidents of institutions. And I remember getting to the end of this three or four day event and them saying, please tell us, what is your biggest takeaway? And they said, Aaron, what is your biggest takeaway? And I just said, I do not want to be a college president. That is my biggest takeaway. That sounds terrible. That sounds like not at all what I want to be doing. But VP of Student Affairs, yeah, sure, that sounds really great. And so I would still get calls occasionally about Concern Center. And, you know, I answered most of them, maybe sold for nominal rates. You know, I, I think at one point, the man who helped create it was like, yeah, I'm just going to start this business, right? And I'm like, you can, but if you don't have any connections in this space, you're really just an IT guy. And I don't say just an IT guy, like with the word just yeah. in front of it, because <laughs> IT guys rule the world, IT people rule the world. But at that time, I really just didn't have this desire to to move this forward. After that job, I went on and got another job in higher ed. And that's where, again, I actually ended up ending my career after four years at that institution. But it wasn't until COVID that this whole thinking and thought process started to change for me. I would dabble in it. I actually went through the steps associated with being a official legit business in 2018, which was before COVID. So I, I had had some, you know, early thoughts of it. I had created the, the Google drives, you know, I had done all, created the logos, all the things, the fun parts, right? Of business running. All the, all the steps you take to. Prevent yourself from actually doing what you need to do. You're <laughs> in the actual work. Yeah. My favorite is buying all the business cards that you end up not using and you end up recycling because they just didn't work for your needs, right? Or all the marketing materials because I'm going to need these brochures and then right. six months before they're outdated already. Yeah. <laughs> I did all those things. <laughs> all that. So yeah, I, I did all of those things. And then when COVID hit, a lot happened all in one time. But for me specifically, I was 
busier than I had ever been trying to adapt wellness programs and services for a COVID world. We're talking, I was helping um, my directors to oversee fitness centers and health promotion programming and wellness ed classes that included things like ballroom dancing. Well, how do you do ballroom dancing in the midst of COVID, right? Or the, the Red Barn, which is a climbing facility. How do you climb? How do you clean those handles, right? All of that stuff was taking a tremendous amount of time. I was working from home. I was just like everyone else trying to figure out how you have some semblance of work-life relationship. And mental health awareness started to really take off in a far less stigmatizing and we're all in this together way that essentially pushed me forward to a point a little over a year ago now where I had to ask myself one question. And that was, you can stay where you currently are in this job that you love with these people you love working with at an institution that you think is top-notch, is your favorite institution, or you can always wonder what if. Which one are you going to do? And I knew immediately that the answer was, I need to go run Concern Center full time. But I wasn't really ready to face that and to accept that for probably two, three months after really asking myself that question. What was the tipping point that finally pushed you over the a proverbial edge, I guess, because this is a, a, I think, a critical point that you know, in having many conversations with you know existing family office clients that I work with, or people thinking about going through something like this, especially after going through a transition, whether they like their career or have been forced out in a in a, in a way, is in in your example, you've been building up to this, but it's there's still something preventing you from doing it until. That that mm-hmm. click and then it happens and then you're off to the races. Yeah. If I think back at that time, part of my process is I am a pretty risk averse person. I I am a Capricorn. That's gonna say everything anyone who's into astrology needs to know about me. I am very detail-oriented. I like to know that all of the funding is there. I'm not someone who loves to take outlandish risks. I certainly as a woman in my 40s, didn't want to take a risk that was going to put my family's life in jeopardy, that was going to impact the financial stability of our household. So all of these things were sort of going on for me. And the thing that ultimately, I think, pushed me over the edge had to do with how much support I was getting from outside people who were confirming for me this is incredible. This is something you can help people. You can help people in ways that you are not able to do within higher ed. You're able to do worldwide level exposure, which is important to me. I had the support of my family, which was incredibly important to me. I think my husband was on board for me doing this back in 2018. 
Um, and he will tell you if you were literally in this room today, he would say, there's not anything that you don't touch that doesn't have success associated with it. I believe in you hands down and I support you a hundred percent of the way. So that was critical. Um, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a part of me that also thought, well, if it's a complete failure, I can just blame it on him, right? <laughs> you forced me to do it. My son, who was born in 2015, would have been, so let's say, three or four, right around the 2018, 2019 time. And it is important to me that he understands that women are strong and capable and take risks and are leaders. And so um, I would be lying if I didn't say that he was a really important part of my thinking about what type of legacy and when he's sitting around with his children at some point talking about me, what's he going to say, you know, about his mom? And I want one of the things that he says to be like, my mom took calculated risks and she put her heart and soul into everything and she didn't stop until she got there. And I thought, with this business, this is the time that I have to be able to show what I can do when I'm left to my own devices, which leads me to the last piece that I think was important. I had found in every institution of higher ed I had been a part of, and to be fair, I genuinely think this would be every single industry, that I just didn't feel like I fit. I was the person in the meetings who would think about things differently than other people. I would be the person who would get incredibly annoyed with the fact that the efficiency associated with what we were doing was way off. It just wasn't working in the way we needed to. I would receive feedback from my supervisors that I wasn't patient enough. <laughs> and I would think to myself, no, I'm not patient enough because we don't need to take this long to make a decision about something, right? And after four institutions and experiencing the same feeling over and over again, I decided it's not the institutions, it's me. And the me is that I just don't fit in this type of situation, this type of environment that is controlled by other people, that has a whole bunch of overhead and red tape, um, that I am my success is tied to people that I don't get to choose who are around me, but instead have just been sort of imposed upon me as my supervisors or other people up higher in the, in the chain of command. And I thought, you have to own that at some point, Aaron, that that's you and that you are different than that. I'm not going to say better or worse, but you're different and you just don't fit. And so you can either spend all your time trying to get higher ed to change for you, or you can say, I'm just going to go do my own thing and I'm going to run it the way that I want to run it. One of the things I had noted was this term that you used when we were emailing back and forth was your expertise is in feeling my way through life. And I, <laughs> I was going to ask you if you could elaborate on that, but I think you just did. <laughs> yeah. I am a highly sensitive person. And for those who might not know, HSPs, which is what we are called, is like a legit... Yeah, I was going to ask you to explain that because I've had yeah. um, Melody uh, Wielding on the show. I don't know if you know okay. of Melody and her work, but she uses this term, sensitive striver. And she wrote the book, uh, Trust Yourself. It's on my 
bookshelf back there. And Melody is great. She's been on twice. She does a lot of LinkedIn learning education videos. And so when when I saw that you had put that down, highly sensitive person, I'm like, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I thought of Melody first. So walk us through what that is. HSPs, highly sensitive people, it's really hard to explain unless you are one. (laughs) So essentially, we feel things so incredibly deeply that the entire part of our existence is transformed by all the things that we feel at all times. We see the world a little bit differently. We are highly empathic. Sometimes we have um, just like extraordinary senses associated with things. I don't mean to make it sound like there's like a clairvoyant component associated with this. When I said that, it sounded a little more like mythical than what I mean for it to. But highly sensitive people essentially feel things so incredibly deeply that it's this innate sense of connection to people around us, to relationships that we have. And it's sometimes hard to be an HSP because it's like you're this live wire walking around all of the time, um, just feeling and taking on the emotions and connections about everyone around you. Like I mentioned in the beginning about not being able to do therapy, I think it was, I didn't know at the time that I was a highly sensitive person, but I was taken on way too much. My senses were overloaded at all times by the weight of the challenges and grief that people were were feeling. I now have an HSC, highly sensitive child. Thank you, genetics. And so I am seeing in him, gosh, the most beautiful, sensitive, empathic, loving, caring version of what a child could be. And also the challenges associated with being an eight-year-old with really big feelings and helping him learn how to navigate that in this sometimes not so receptive world. Looking back at your journey, if you were, you know, talking to one of our listeners about that that's in a similar situation, but is still on that teeter-totter, if you will, about what direction to go in, what specific advice or action item would you tell that that person? Oh boy. I would say Find trusted advisors and people in your life whose opinions you respect above all else. And this includes not just people who are going to tell you what you want to hear. My best friend's a great example of this. She's going to tell me how it is, what her opinion is. And she's going to see me in a way that I either don't want to see myself sometimes or that I conveniently put aside um, so that I don't have to think about it. When you have those trusted advisors and when all of them are on board and saying to you, let's do this, let's support you, let's figure this out together, you have the basis, in my opinion, of what can be an amazing next step because it is not due to the own hard work of myself that I have gotten where I am today. It's because of leaning in and finding those connections that are incredibly meaningful to me, asking people for help, 
telling people I don't know how to do something and relying on that community-based approach to get me where I am. If people have that, I would say you are well on your way to knowing that your idea or whatever it is that you're trying to get off of the ground is in a really good place. I think that's very sage advice and very elegantly put. And we'll put the link to the to the Concern Center in our show notes um, as well for the listeners. But my closing question that I ask all of my guests is, what is the best thing about being a parent? Mm. Ah. Wow, the best thing about being a parent. For me, it is the unconditional love that I am able to give to my child and that I know he gives back to me even on our toughest days. That level of connection and love for me is not of this earth. You can see I get teary-eyed when I talk about it. It really um, has changed me as a human being to know that that level of love exists in this world and has forever changed since I've had him what the rest of my experience walking through this life has looked like. Well, Aaron, I don't, I don't think there's anything else I could add to that. And, and it's, it's, uh, why I, I end with that question with almost every conversation I have because the answers vary and to see the emotion that, that people, uh, show is just incredible. So I can't thank you enough for being on the emotional balance sheet podcast. Again, best place for people to find your work is, is at the concern center, correct? Yep. www.concerncenter.com. Follow us on social media. We'd love for people to follow us, share us, um, continue to learn about our journey and and just participate with us as we continue on this crazy, wonderful, awesome road. Well, terrific. I'm sure we'll be having more conversations in, in our future, but thank you so much, Aaron. We appreciate you being on. Thanks for your time. Awesome to meet you. I think my biggest takeaway from my conversation with Aaron is this. Unexpected opportunities can come at the most unexpected times. Who would have thought that during COVID, somebody that was in academia would find themselves as an entrepreneur? But I think in difficult times like that, although it's very hard to embrace the challenges that come to you, I think somebody like Aaron and her journey uh, can inspire anybody to make a change. And the fact that from a financial perspective, she was prepared for this as well. I think that's the other point when it really comes to financial planning is it's not necessarily about retirement or college for your kids. It's about what can we plan to do now and what can we plan for the unexpected? So obviously we can't plan for everything, but having the ability to leave a job that you don't like or to start a business uh, when an opportunity is presented to you can be life-changing experiences. If you've enjoyed this conversation, could you do me a favor? Do you know anyone else who would enjoy these types of conversations where we talk about the intersections of our emotional and financial lives? Because if you do, it's actually going to help both of us. 
Could you share this conversation with someone? They will think you're great because you just gave them this terrific podcast, and it helps me grow my audience. Or you can tell them to go to TamaCapital.com. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.